All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the opportunity to study it together. We pray that you'll open the scriptures up to our minds and our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Exodus 15. Please tell me I'm right. Yes, you're right. Okay. Maybe. I get you. <laughs> On some things. <laughs> okay. Let's look, uh, beginning with verse 1, Exodus 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. And they spoke, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. A horse and its rider he cast into the sea. This is called, I guess if, if you have divisions in your Bible, it'll probably say something like Song of Moses or something like that. This is a song, however, that doesn't stop. If you, and I'm, and I'm not saying go there, but in the Revelation chapter 15, you have this wonderful picture as, as those who are about to pour out the seven last plagues, the bowls of wrath, then the saints finally out of the, those coming out of that part of the tribulation ascended, uh, uh, assembled before the sea of glass, it's called. Maybe it's the crystal sea. Calm. And it says that it's, it uh, reflects or it's mingled with fire. And it describes those as those who are standing there, these saints, it describes them as those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name. Then it says somewhere in verse 4 or 5, it says, And they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So this is verse 1 of a song. There's another verse uh, that's going to be sung at the end. And what you have is you have God's people at, at, the, at the beginning of it and at the end of it. They're doing the same thing. They just, the circumstances are a little bit different. But the principle is still the same, which is namely... The people of God, the elect of God, are in a hopeless situation. And God delivered them himself by his strength. Uh, and so, so they sing the song. Well, this is the story of the people of God all the way through history. And then there's this final verse, at least for that song. I, I, there may be other verses that I don't know about that we're yet to learn in some wonderful day. But the song of the Lamb, these, these people saved by the mighty act of God with uh, the opening and closing of the Red Sea, the final glorious power of God seen, of course, in the blood of the Lamb. 
So at the end of it, you're not only seeing what, what, what has begun, at least at this part of the history of God's people. This is a nation, and this is a watershed. This is the, this is the elect of the Old Testament here, beginning in Exodus. Uh, this, is, this is a different uh, uh, scenario, different from the times of the patriarchs. Uh, the book of Exodus is showing how God is separating his people from the rest of the nations. And then he, he plants his, his, his will and his redemptive purpose within them. And he charges them. And we're not going to see all that in verse 15. But he charges them with these great responsibilities. Uh, we talked a little bit about that this morning, the responsibility that Israel had because of the privilege of being God's elect in the Old Testament. So God does great things for them. And at the end of the Bible, we will see that those at the close of the age were in a hopeless situation. Uh, the, the saints of God were, were being tortured, persecuted, hounded, chased, killed. And at their assembly, they had a song. We've, we've, been, we've been delivered, just like they were delivered in their way. We've been delivered in our way, and it's called the Song of the Lamb. So they sang the Song of Moses, the Song of the Lamb, which leads you to believe that this, this, this in the last half of the tribulation especially, where, where the... The, the, the primary focus is on Israel being saved. Um, you know, so they're, they're, it's not just Israel, of course, there are others as well. But Israel had such a great part in it, so the song of Moses can continue in the song of the Lamb. And here the, here's the principle of the whole thing. It's the power of Yahweh. If you look at verse 1 again, it says... Um, they spoke and they said, uh, Yahweh has triumphed gloriously. He cast, he cast the chariots of Egypt into the sea. Verse 2, Yah. Now that's a shortened version of Yahweh. You see it uh, on limited occasions in the Bible. Yah is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. Uh, my, uh, my God, he is, he is my God, and I will, I will praise him. There's another, way to, uh, there's another way to translate that. I will make him a habitation. In other words, I will, live, I will live in him. God is my father. Elohe Abi, God of, God of my father, and I will exalt him. So this is part of their song. Verse 3, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. That's interesting. Here in the song of Moses, to keep our comparison to the song in the Revelation 15, Yahweh is seen as a warrior single-handedly defeating this great Egyptian army. He's a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And uh, man of war, it's, it's, it, it has a, in, in my view, it has a distant taste of uh, 
messianic prophecy. Yahweh is a man of war. Okay, so go back to the Revelation. What, what do we see then? Uh, not far from there, past Revelation 15, Yahweh is a man of war. He's on a white horse and uh, he's leading a vast army, but he doesn't, he doesn't need the army. He just, there were, here were three, two and a half, three million Israelites. Yahweh didn't need them. They were armed. We saw how they took arms with him as they left. He, he didn't need that army. He just did it. He took care of business himself. That's the way, uh, that's the way our Christ does at Armageddon. And he comes in war. Yahweh is his name. In every sense of the word, not just spiritual, in my view, but even in uh, uh, even in contemporaneous and uh, and physical terms, all the way through history, Yahweh is a man of war for his people. He will maintain his people in this world. There, there, and I'm not just talking about Israel with, with regard to the Holocaust or anything. I'm talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. It just seems like every time, every time the heads of Christians get lopped off, thousands and thousands of others take their place. It's just the way that God operates. Um, so all the way through the history of God's people, the principle exists that Yahweh fights for his people. Of course, in a spiritual way that we cannot see. We get a glimpse of it time to, from time to time in the Bible. Uh, for example, when Jacob's eyes were opened and he saw the two camps at Hanim, he saw the two camps which were angels, a vast camp of them ahead of him and one behind him. This is the way I understand it. Because Esau was, Esau was in front of him and the last thing that Esau said was, I'm going to kill you after I'm through grieving with my father. And then Uncle Laban was ill because he thought Jacob had cheated him. Uh, although Jacob took, took, took the ones that he said he would take. There was an agreement there, but Uncle Laban didn't like the agreement. Uh, as it turns out. So uh, Laban was not a kind man and he was in pursuit behind and Jacob simply wasn't a warrior. He didn't, he wasn't a fighter. You know, he, so he, he, he did wrestle with Yahweh on, at Peniel face to face. He saw the Lord. But, um, there were, this, there were these great camp, these two. And so God opened his eyes and he saw that he wasn't alone, you know. Uh, something, something very similar, I think, probably occurred uh, with uh, Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal. Um, all the, you know, all the way through, you get, you get the understanding that Yahweh, and he, how many times has he called Yahweh of armies? Yahweh, uh, Yahweh of hosts or armies, um, which, which is a reminder all the way through the Old Testament 
that he has plenty of force to take care of business, spiritually, physically, ever, ever how you want to think of it. And here, it is accepted by the Israelites, inspired by God, is this, uh, is this song, because Miriam is called a prophetess here, and we'll see that. So that means that she gets the word from the Lord, man of war. So the way they see him here is a man of war. Now, if you did a real good study of the doctrine of the Messiah in the Old Testament, you could, you could just start, and you'd probably start with the seed of woman. And when I speak of Messiah, I talk about, I'm speaking of Messiah relative to his redeeming people who are lost. You could talk about the Christ of God in, in creation and his power to create and all that. But after the, after the fall of man, uh, you, you start with the seed of woman and so many ways that he was described, you know, uh, dying Jacob called him Shiloh uh, when he thought of the Christ. There were other ways that he was seen. Of course, he's typified in the, uh, he was typified in, in the Passover lamb, Paschal lamb. Another addendum to the list of the characteristics of Messiah would be he's a man of war. Now, you know, we, we, we think of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we think of the Christ of God in the New Testament as well we should, uh, who was so benevolent and gracious, uh, but he's, he's, a, he's a man of, of war. And it will be a spectacle to behold when he comes again in power and glory and the assembled hosts of earth's armies will be pulverized just with the appearance of the Christ. As great as the miracle was of Yahweh taking out the whole Egyptian army, greater still will be the display of might from the man of war at that time, the Christ of God, on a white horse, of course, which describes a victorious leader, commander. Um, and it'll be something, you know, he splashes in blood at his touchdown. His vesture is dipped in blood. The blood of his enemies flows like a river. And his horse is splashing on the blood of fallen enemies and it spatters his robe. It's very graphic, uh, the description of it in the Bible. So another, another characteristic to add to, to the characteristics of Messiah is man of war. Now, when we get over here to the outfittings of the tabernacle, we're going to see one characteristic after another of the Messiah because the whole thing depicts the person in the ministry of, of Messiah and who he is and all that he does. Um, and, and the list of the characteristics of, you know, you have all, one could do a, a study on the names of Yahweh, the names of Jehovah. And the you know, Jehovah Nissim, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah this, Jehovah Yira, or Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yira, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rophi, our healer, and on and on the list goes. Jehovah our shepherd. 
So you have all these, quite a few of them, and you get all the characteristics of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But that is, that is, that is the great personal God of God's people. And still added to that, you can add the characteristics of Messiah. And all of those things come to rest in the last mention of Yahweh in the Bible, which is, of course, Jesus, Yahshua. Uh, the, the last time Jehovah is, is mentioned, is, it's all, it all is summed up in the person of Jesus. All of these characteristics are him. It's who he is. The names of Jehovah, the characteristics of the Messiah. This is just one more characteristic of a whole long line of characteristics that are descriptive of Yahweh. That is why, if I may reflect on our parable this morning, um, that is why it was so horrible that the leaders of Israel knew who he was by the language of Luke. We understand they knew that his, his credentials were undeniable as Messiah but they're going to kill him anyway because they don't want that. That's going to ruin them and, and going to ruin their religion and their hold on people and, and their power, their seat of power. Uh, of course, it, they, they wind up getting ruined by it anyway, but they thought they were better than that. All of these characteristics were so descriptive, not just here, but all the way through the Old Testament, so descriptive The Christ of God was so closely and carefully profiled, how could anybody doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? It, it, it was an undeniable thing, and yet they denied it. Uh, so anyway, he's a man of war. All right, let's go to the next one. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His captains are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths covered them, or the floods, the depths, those walls of water. They descended to the bottom like a stone. Well, you know, if you're strapped in your chariot, and your chariot's made of brass or something, and you have a heavy sword, and you have a heavy helmet, and you have a heavy shield, and you have a heavy breastplate, and the wheels are heavy, and the horse is kicking, horse wasn't too happy about it and so the horse is kicking and you're having a hard time you know what's going to happen well you're going to fall to the bottom of the sea that's what's going to happen to you your right hand Yahweh has become glorious in power your right hand Yahweh crushes the enemy now now the right hand in 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 the Bible is the hand of power and Christ is seated at the right hand of the father so Christ is the power that is demonstrated in the time-space continuum uh, from, from the Father. So, so the, the, the authoritative power of uh, Yahweh is made to be glorious uh, and crushes the enemy. So this is, at least in this song, now you and I already know a lot about the rest of the Old Testament, right? And we know that that, that Israel is not going to always be this kind, right? They're not going to always be this happy. 
Um, but for right now, they have a focus that's in the, it's in the right place. Yahweh did it all. We didn't do anything. That will be the focus of those tribulation saints who are assembled at the glass sea. The Lamb did it all. We didn't do anything. Uh, and so, so that, that they, they make the point that it's because of God that they are there. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. Okay, so when the world comes against the elect of God, they're coming against God. That's a dangerous thing to do. And this is acknowledged by the people of God here. They came against you. You send forth your burning wrath. It consumes them like straw. And with a blast of your nostrils, the waters were heaped up. The running water stood erect like a wall. The depths congealed the depths and the heart of the sea. Or the floods congealed the depths. You can you could say it either way. The enemy said, I will pursue, I'll overtake, I will. Now look at how there, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's the way of the world. I will share the booty. My desire will be filled from them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you? Among the Baalim. Okay, let's talk about that. Who is like you among the Baalim, Yahweh? I don't, yours may say gods or something. Gods, is that what it says? It's a, of course, there's only one God, right? But there, there are these principalities and powers. And in the Old Testament, that, that, that phrase, Elim, always refers to demons. They're, they have great authority and power in possessing people in the pagan world, especially in the Old Testament. Um, and of course we see it in the New Testament as well. So what I get from this is that there was an acknowledgement by the people of Israel, or at least in the Song of Moses. And maybe the Song of Moses was to teach the people of Israel that their struggle was against something far greater than the chariots of Egypt. It was against the demons of hell. And of course, one plague after another uh, rendered or, or neutered the, the gods and goddesses of Egypt all the way through. We talked about that uh, until the last plague, the, the, the death of the firstborn. So, there is an acknowledgement here that all the demons of hell, Satan himself, could not do anything. They were impotent and powerless against the true and living God. Who is like you, glorious in holiness? And the word holiness, holiness, it always, it always, in both testaments really, it always refers to the separateness of God. He is unique. He is, he is God, and He is separate, and there is no way that demons or humanity or whatever could approach 
the realm in which God exists, and he can exist in every realm, but there is, there is a place too high and too powerful for any other of God's creation, and that's where God is. So he's glorious there. Fearful in praises, performing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. You led forth in your covenant love, your loyal love for your people. Maybe say, maybe yours says loving kindness or even say mercy, I don't know, but it's, it's a very strong word that talks about the bond that God has established in his covenant with his people. You led forth in your covenant love the people you redeemed. You guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Now this is, well, let me go on. I'll, I'll say what I'm going to say here in just a second. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be startled. As for the mighty men of Moab, trembling will seize them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt. All right, so kings across the region woke up to the news. There's a great and powerful force coming, and their God destroys all gods. He's invincible. And, and their God is fighting for them. Let me mute my speaker here. So, uh, verse 16, Fear and dread will fall on them. With the arm of your greatness, they will become as still as a stone until your people cross over, Yahweh, until these people whom you have purchased. That's an interesting word. Uh, that, that word, it's the last word, in case you're wondering, in the Hebrew text of the last verse of the Hebrew next to what looks like a colon, which is this period. It's, it's equally as, it's, it's as equally correct to translate it purchased as it is created. So if you use the term created, God created the nation of Israel. God, you know, they, they it wasn't just because they uh, exponentially multiplied as a particular race of people. It is because God created them. Of course, he also, he also purchased them. But it's a very powerful word in that God created these people. So they, only, they can only owe their existence as a nation, as a separate people, as the elect of God. They can only owe that existence as they exist to Yahweh. There's, there's, no other, there's no other explanation for the nation of Israel. Now here's, this is, I want to bring back what I was talking about just a second ago and we'll put it together here. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your heritage or your possession. In the place of your habitation, which you made, Yahweh, the sanctuary Adonai, which your hands established, Adonai instead of Yahweh, in the second case here which is master or sovereign owner. Now look at verse 18. Yahweh will reign to all eternity or forever and ever, however you want to say it. Now let's think about this. This is the purpose and will of God. 
Okay, this is to me a very heavy thought. It doesn't just stop with Canaan. We're talking eternity here. You see those two, there, there are no verse separations in the original text. So, so you, have, you, you have this whole thought that moves together. You are bringing your people to where you live, to where you are. You're bringing them to you. You are their Adonai. You are their master, their owner. You are their Lord. You are bringing them to you and your hands established all of this. And you will reign forever and ever. In other words, you will reign over your people forever and ever. If you ever study uh, Old Testament uh whatever, theology, whatever. There are so many misguided people who call themselves scholars that say that there's no concept of heaven and there's no concept of hell and there's no concept of the afterlife and all this kind of thing. Um, just, this, just this phrase here, verse, what we have is verses 17 and 18. Just this phrase teaches us that the purpose, and Christ says the same thing, really, in John 14. So that where I am, there you may be also. It's the purpose of God. His people are going to be brought by His hand to where He is. And it is a thing that will last forever. He will always be our King. He will always be our Savior. Uh, he will always be our, our friend, our liberator, our redeemer, whatever. And when God does, you see, God belongs to eternity. It's so hard for us to understand. God's thoughts are eternal thoughts. You can't say they ever had a beginning or they ever had an ending. It's hard to conceive, but... That's why God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're above your thoughts. I mean, my ways are not your ways. They're above your ways. We, we can't conceive of that. Suffice it to say that when he thought of Charles Owens, he always thought of Charles Owens. He didn't just think of me at my conception or at my birth or at my being born again. He always thought of me because he is forever and ever. So I have forever and ever belonged to him. Now notice what it says. The place of your habitat where you are. You are eternal. You reign forever. You're bringing us through time and space to where you have always been and you have always known. So it's a great thought here in the Song of Moses in these two verses. When Pharaoh's horses came with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and Yahweh brought the waters of the sea back upon them, and the sons of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women came out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam called out to them, Sing to Yahweh, for very exalted is he, a horse and its rider he cast into the sea. Okay, so now uh, 
Miriam, identified as a prophetess, means that she speaks the word of God. She's there in behalf as a servant of God. Uh, so the, the women follow her. It's interesting. Women have always been more willing to dance and carry on than men have. You ever noticed that? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Now there was a reverse. The woman in his life wasn't too happy about dancing, but he was. I remember recess when I was a kid and it was a rainy day. Oh, man. <laughs> we had to play these old dumb songs and you had to dance. <laughs> and all the boys withdrew, you know. Look around, wouldn't look at the teacher in the eye. But the girls, oh, they all wanted to get up there and dance. And so, and so here they are. It all started there, I guess. Do you have a. So there was nothing pagan. No, she's a prophetess. She's a prophetess. Uh, and that, that means that, that, that she's, you know, she's, and I, I don't doubt that the Lord enjoys people being happy. I don't want to be a fool. <laughs> I'm about as happy as a person ought to be. <laughs> if, you, if you're any happier than me, you're in error. <laughs> Moses led Israel away from the Red Sea and they went out into the desert of Shur. They walked for three days in the desert but didn't find water. They came to Marah. They couldn't find, whoops, they couldn't find, did I go fast? Yeah, there we go. They couldn't, Let's see. Well, couldn't find water. They could not drink water from Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means, of course, Mar means bitter, of, of bitterness. Marah, of, of bitterness. The people complained against poor Moses. The water is bitter, and it's your fault. I know the feeling. The people complained against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? Now, I want you to think about this. What have they seen? If I was Moses, I would have said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to go back and let you take a good drink of the Red Sea. How would you like that? But I wasn't Moses. That's why I am who I am, and he was who he was. What shall we drink? So here we go, right? So he cried out to Yahweh. Yahweh instructed him uh, to get a piece of a tree. I literally, I, I should have translated that better. Which he cast into the water, and the water became sweet. There he gave them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them. Okay, now listen to this. God gave them a law. A statute, an ordinance. Here it is. If you hearken to the voice of Yahweh, if you hearken to the voice of Yahweh your God, and you do what is right in his sight, and listen to his commandments, keep his statutes, all the sicknesses that I have visited upon Egypt, I will not visit upon you, for I, Yahweh, will heal you. So that's a statute. The statute is stay focused on me. 
stop grumbling and complaining, have faith, do what is right, listen to whatever I say, and whatever you saw happened in Egypt, it'll never happen to you. It won't happen to you. Because I, Yahweh, heal you. They came to Elam. And, and it's, now this is a proper name. It's not like it's not like that other. And there were 12 water fountains. How many tribes were there? 12. How many tribes were hungry or were thirsty? 12. 12. How many fountains of water were there? 12. <laughs> What'd you do all night? 12. That's a joke. Uh, you, you'd have to hear the real joke. And I'm not going to tell it, so don't worry. Uh, whoops. Twelve water fountains and seventy palms. And they encamped there, by the way. Now they're tired. They're grumbling. And God, <laughs> I mean, the twelve water fountains were always there. You know? They were headed in that direction. If they'd just chill out a little bit, they'd get all the water they want. So they're going to get a rest here. And they need one. Yahweh, <laughs> Yahweh needs one. Uh, Yahweh has ear fatigue by this point, probably, uh, from listening to these people. I'm tired. Had plenty of stuff for them when they, he never failed them. He, even in their worst, he never failed them. Never. They always failed him, but he never failed them. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us and how you tend to us and are merciful to us even when we are so foolish. Comfort us in these thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen.